spoiler alert! Here is this week's show show with Sweets and Slaney. It is time for the show show pod without Slaney, only Sweets. Cause Slaney's getting hitched this weekend and we'll all be there. Though some in spirit, I'll be there in person. I am uh, flying solo right now. I'm in the in the show show studio and we're kind of amidst our annual uh, show show podcast spring hiatus. Is that an official thing? It seems to me there's always one of us getting uh, like moving to a new home or going on some kind of vacation. And it just lines up that we always tend to take like upwards of a month off from the podcast in spring. And uh, I don't think we really warned anybody that that was happening. Maybe we talked about the fact that Slaney was getting married coming up and that I was going on a, a Florida vacation. And so we just haven't had a couple of podcasts now, and it seems like we're probably not going to have a couple of more. We weren't going to have one this week at all, but I decided there was so many things to talk about, pop culture, culturally speaking, and I was craving attention. So uh, I thought I would just do a podcast by myself because here I am at home. I don't think Slaney would mind. I also don't think he's going to notice because I saw him yesterday. And he is uh, not nervous, in his words. He's not nervous to get married. He's excited to get married. But because there are so many balls in the air, the perpetually relaxed, easygoing Matt Slaney, who I can't identify with at all, is kind of stressed out. And I feel closer to him than ever. It's lovely to see. And I'm excited to see him get married. It's going to be a a fun time. And I'm sure in a couple of weeks, he'll come back and tell us all about it. And uh, I'll regale him with my experience, which is at least as important. And in the meantime, I figured we'd talk about some things, you and I, open a dialogue, you and I, about uh, what's been going on uh, in the news. Well, first of all, I I was in Florida for a week, and so I tried my best. You know what's so silly? I told myself uh, on the Friday before my week-long vacation, I'm going to delete Twitter from my phone. And not because I don't like Twitter, but because I love Twitter too, too much, and I think it's bad for me. I thought uh, the only way I'm going to be able to disconnect from whatever Trump thing I I don't need to know or hear about while I'm on vacation, in Florida of all places, in a red state, uh, is to delete the Twitter app from my phone. And that way I won't be tempted to check it every 30 seconds. And did I do that? Nah, because I found some reason to, (laughs) some excuse to need it. Um, And it's not to say that Twitter is exclusively toxic, but it does kind of expose you to some negativity that you don't need all the time. Now, I was desperately in need of some some time away. I don't know if it was time away from from work because we all get tired or time away from Nova Scotia or just time away from the grind. I am back feeling a little bit better. I was in like a really like negative, I don't want to say a dark place. It was a dark place. Uh, a negative a negative zone going into vacation. And now I'm starting to feel a little bit better. I'm checking things off my list. Do you guys make lists? It's great to make lists. It feels enormously <laughs> uh, satisfying to tick stuff off a list. My dad is a lists person. He always has been. He makes lists and he he checks stuff off. The, the, the hack is to put stuff on the list that you've already done. So your list is never brand new. It's never fresh. You've always got a, a jump start on the, on the project. How you doing? Everything good? You been okay? This is corny when uh, when uh, it's cliche when when podcasters do that, right? When they <laughs> when they ask a a question that the the audience couldn't possibly answer, you could answer uh, out loud sitting on the trolley, but that would be bizarre. I mean, you wouldn't be the only person on the trolley talking to yourself, but you don't want to be one of them. Answer in your head, and uh, I'll just have to assume you're doing okay. Could be better. That's most of us, right? How'd you like the lyrics I wrote for our theme song? Those are the original lyrics, by the way. And finally, 121 episodes of the show show in, finally, they're applicable to our exact circumstance. They're very specific, which is why we didn't use the the lyrics version for our show. We used the instrumental version for 120 episodes of the podcast. My name is Colin. This is the show show podcast. Uh, I guess we could just dive in. Okay, so uh, the biggest movie in the world... Uh, is the biggest movie in the world John Wick? Did John Wick come out? John Wick 3? This is, I feel like John Wick is like, it's like a Fast and the Furious movie in that you hear a little bit about it. Pop culturally speaking, there's the obligatory uh, Keanu Reeves talk show circuit. He does Graham Norton. He does Stephen Colbert and somehow comes up with an accurate and non-denominational answer to the question, what happens to us when we die, Keanu Reeves? If you haven't seen that clip, it's kind of lovely. 
Um, he's going around. I feel like for the most part, though, and maybe it's just because it's the third part in a franchise that does pretty well and doesn't need a lot of promotion. But like Fast and the Furious, everyone is always aware when there's a new John Wick movie, a new Fast and Furious movie. But it doesn't necessarily get the the promotion that, say, like a Marvel movie would get. There's no, there's no Pert Plus Kids John Wick series. You know what I mean? Like there's no toothpaste with John Wick and his dog on the packaging, the way they go all out for like a new Star Wars movie or something. But these movies make stupid money, like stupid money because they're like middle America movies. They're broadly appealing and uh, everybody likes action. And I mean, I like a, <laughs> I like a Tennessee Williams as much as the next guy, but I also like a couple of Fast and Furious movies. I had never seen a John Wick movie. Uh, and I was kind of in the mood for something pulpy and exciting to watch when I was the only one awake in my house. And so because it's in the zeitgeist, because people are talking about John Wick 3, and apparently it's really good, it's got like 97% on Rotten Tomatoes or something, I was like, I should watch the first John Wick movie, and I looked for it on Netflix, and sure enough, there it was, and what the fuck is the matter with you people? What's wrong? Why, why are you watching this movie? Seriously, if there's one thing that is sacred in this in this world, I thought it was freaking dogs. I put on this movie. I put on this movie. I'm alone, and I'm like, okay, I could watch some kung fu and some gun actions, so like some some pulpy violence. That's right up my alley right now. And I like Keanu Reeves, don't we all? And it's uh, it opens on sad Keanu Reeves, which we're also very familiar with. And I'm like, okay, he's gonna be sad and lonely. That is the background for every hitman since the dawn of time. Let's go in. And he gets a cute dog, and they kill the goddamn dog. I know this is not a hot take. I know people talk about the dog in John Wick, and I don't know if, like, the dog comes back to life later or if he gets a new dog and there's redemption in some way, but he's harassed at the gas station by some thugs, and then the thugs break into his house and they kill his dog, and I guess that is in the inciting action for an entire trilogy of violent John Wick movies. But I watched the first 11 minutes, and I'm like, oh, they're going to kill this goddamn dog. And then uh, I turned it off. 11 minutes in. And then the next night, I was like, I'm going to give this another shot because people love John Wick movies. And I watched 35 seconds before I turned it off again because there was like a little yelp and the dog dies. And then Keanu Reeves, wake, he wakes up next to the dead dog and holds the dead dog. Are we friggin' kidding, people? <laughs> uh, and so this is another example of me wanting to be a part of a pop cultural thing. Clearly, I'm into pop culture, but like, why can't I? Why, why do I have to? Uh, I know I'm not the most empathetic person. So how is it that I can't watch this, but so so many other people can? And by the way, how can Keanu Reeves stand to to be in these movies? I know he's, he's making a ton of money from them, but he had back end on The Matrix. He's worth like $400 million. All he has to do is ride motorcycles for the rest of his life, which by the way, has had a lot of tragedy in it too. His the love of his life died. Was it in childbirth? In some horrific medical way, they also lost their baby. Uh, I think he had, did he have abusive parents or like one of his best friends died or something? There's like so much tragedy in Keanu Reeves' life that he himself is a tragic figure. So why is he doing these stories about tragic figures? I don't understand. So anyway, congratulations if you like the new John Wick movie. I assume if there's 97% uh, the critics that enjoy this third one, there's some kind of redemption for the dog. Uh, tweet me if there is, because even still, I'm not going to go back in. I, I'm too, <laughs> too jilted now. I can't handle it. I feel bad for the dog. And I'm not even a dog person. Are you allowed to say that? You're not supposed to say things like that. But I like, I like other people's dogs as long as they're at a distance. And this one was through a screen. And so I was rooting for the dog not to get killed by thugs, not to get killed by hitmen. Come on. Disney is assuming control of Hulu. In fact, that took that took effect yesterday, I think. And this is only essential information for... I mean, it is for all of us because it, it, it impacts the greater conversation of Disney's nearly dangerous monopoly over the entertainment industry in general. Of course, that's... Uh, that connects to the Fox conversation. Is this fair? But Hulu... Hulu's kind of a special case because for whatever silly CRTC reason, Hulu, which has existed for nigh on a decade, uh, has never been accessible in Canada as long as it's had good shit on it. Uh, and so Hulu is like one of the main players up there with Netflix and Prime 
and um, and HBO, and we can't access Hulu content unless it's uh, surrogate adopted by some other Canadian accessible uh, outlet. Like for example, Pen Fifteen, which we really loved on this podcast, you could watch it for three for free through uh, the CBC Gem app, which is nice, but it's not true of every Hulu show. I don't think anyway. Like, where can you watch The Handmaid's Tale in Canada? Again, too sad for Lil Lil Sweets. Um, but I guess that the Disney, is it an acquisition? Disney's control, their creative control of Hulu could help us get a little bit closer to Hulu being accessible in Canada. I know Hulu has been promising that it's going to happen ASAP for a long, long time, and it's probably not even their fault. They probably want to be within Canada, but, uh, Disney assuming creative control, maybe Hulu, uh, will put their shows on, on Disney plus which, by the way, also not going to be available in Canada until after it's released in the States. I I still can't imagine that they're not going to amend that. How in the world is it a good idea to put out an original Star Wars series from Jon Favreau in the fall and only make it accessible in the States? These movies rely so heavily on, and I do mean the movies within Lucasfilm, they rely so heavily on global box office so why would you only make the television series accessible in the States? Inviting people to pirate it. Game of Thrones is the most illegally acquired entertainment in the history of entertainment. You don't want to have that happen to you. And Star Wars is the only thing that's uh, on par. Star Wars and Marvel, also a Disney property. So listen, speaking of, of Star Wars and, and Game of Thrones, David Benioff, D.B. Weiss, officially the creative directors behind the next Star Wars trilogy. So that's kind of exciting is that in the last couple of weeks, we got these release dates for the next three Star Wars movie movies beyond episode nine, which comes out this year. There's a three-year gap. We got to wait another three years after this Christmas for the next Star Wars movie and then kicks off the next trilogy, which as far as we understand has nothing to do with Luke Skywalker. It's, I think, set within the Old Republic, which previously is best explored through video games that are beloved by Star Wars fans. So that's very exciting. And it is helmed by the uh, showrunners of Game of Thrones, who are interesting figures and until recent weeks, universally lauded by nerd culture. But interestingly, Game of Thrones, critically, not really doing great this year. And I'm still an episode behind. I haven't seen this most recent one. Um, it's interesting because, and this is not the first season of Game of Thrones, I don't believe that... Uh, reaches beyond original canon written within the novels by Martin. But I think it's safe to say that this storyline that we're seeing conclusively is largely crafted by Benioff and Weiss. Is that right? So are we to glean from this that maybe they're really not so good at writing original content, that they're pretty good at shepherding existing property within a predetermined set of parameters, but maybe they're not so good at writing original content? And if that's the case, how is that going to look for their Star Wars trilogy? Because they're going to have to write a lot of original content considering there's not a lot of canon to to build a story around already within the Old Republic. So I, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll have to wait a couple of years. But... Uh, Benioff and Weiss have a lot to prove because right now they're going to they're going to have to uh, break through the expectations uh, that they're well not the expectations but they are of course at risk of being labeled one hit wonders and we wouldn't want that to be the case obviously they're very very good at what they do I don't mean to be negative but uh, I guess we'll see and we don't know how uh, Ryan Johnson is going to be influencing that particular trilogy I don't know a show got renewed. For three more seasons and that show is this is us <laughs> which is good like this almost never happens i can't remember the last time a show got renewed for for three seasons lost i guess probably after the first three seasons abc was like okay lost gets three more seasons and that's it because i don't know what you're doing and that was wise uh yes i'm an apologist for the for the final seasons of lost i think they're great and, and up into and including the series finale i think it's so good three more seasons of of this is us, which means it's got a similar arc because they're three seasons deep already. And uh, the creator of the show had said a while back that he has an out. He knows where it's going. I think they've already filmed stuff for the out, which is cool. The only thing that, that makes me a little bit concerned, and they haven't necessarily confirmed that season six will be the last season. Uh, I just really hope it is because network dramas like this, I th they're cash cows, right? 
I mean, I think they're cash cows. And confirming three more seasons, they could even they could even get a seventh season because all of these actors signed on in season one for a seven year deal. They are held on to for seven more years. Uh, Milo Ventimiglia can't run and hide. He can't go do anything else for at least three more years. And they can get him at the same rate without him renegotiating his contract until after season seven. So they could definitely decide that if they still have all this steam within uh, season six, now we'll come back and we'll give you one more. We'll give you one more because that's what you want. When really that's what they want because money is the best. Um, I don't know, man. We talk a lot on this show, this, this podcast about the importance of knowing when to say when, and up until now, Dan Fogelman has appeared to be one of those people who knows when to say when, with the exception of that god-awful movie that came out this year. I forget what it was called, but it just got critically trashed, and it's on Netflix already. Uh, uh, I don't know. I really hope that he he gets that you can overdo this kind of thing, especially with the jumping around the timeline shtick that they're that they're so comfortable doing. That's dangerous. That's that, So just be very careful. Now, there's a, there's a much more interesting TV show renewal story. <laughs> and I, I mean, I have to imagine that the cast of This Is Us celebrated when they found out that they're guaranteed work for three more years. Network money on a really popular show. That's really good for Chrissy Metz and Chris Sullivan. They're excited about that, okay? They had champagne. Constance Wu? Maybe not. Maybe not so much. Fresh off the boat and Crazy Rich Asians, Constant Constance Wu. As in, Constance Wu, girl, what did you do? <laughs> why did you Why did you say all that stuff? Did you hear about this? Constance Wu. Okay, so um, she's having a moment. She's having a good time uh, in her career because Fresh Off the Boat has been doing really well. It was a really good platform for her, a jumping off point. Popular show. Uh, and then she starred in Crazy Rich Asians, which was, uh, it was ceiling shattering, right? It was great. It was a really good movie and she was really good in it. And so it afforded her opportunities to do new things, exciting things as an artist. And of course, I support her want to do more things and exciting things as an artist. But when you sign a contract to be on a TV show, you got to be on that TV show. And by the way, I don't feel sorry for you. And so... The news came out that Fresh Off the Boat had been renewed. It was tweeted from Fresh Off the Boat. And she tweeted in response, Ugh, fuck. This is the worst. <laughs> so mad right now. Which is vague and bizarre to find out that, no, you're going to get to keep working. They're going to keep paying you. You're going to get to keep being on a screen. People are going to keep celebrating you and watching you. More checks are coming in, Constance. Ah, fuck, ugh, this is the worst. So mad right now. And then uh, Fresh Out of the Boat Instagrams the same message. Yay, we got renewed. And she commented, dislike. She just wrote the word dislike. And if that wasn't uh, clear enough, somebody, a fan of hers, directly messages Constance Wu and says, uh, congratulations on the show renewal. renewal. That's great news. And she goes, no, it's not. <laughs> she openly responds to this person, no, it's not. And, of course, this seems enormously ungrateful. You have an acting opportunity that so many people would dream of. And she releases an apology, which I think it's one of those apologies that just manages to make things worse. Uh, she, she says that she had been planning on it being canceled, I guess, because she had lined up a few other working opportunities, opportunities that were going to challenge her as an artist, projects that she'd now have to give up, that she's sad to have to give up because she was excited to do them. Those are all fair grievances. Uh, but you weren't clear about that, and you just seemed really ungrateful. And I think those are some emotions you should probably keep to yourself. Again, because you're very lucky to be a working actor. That's a privilege. And also, why should we have assumed that? And she included in her clarification letter, because it was really not an apology at all, uh, it was kind of an accusation of how could you make these assumptions about me? She included at the end, believe women, which you should do. You should believe women. But this is not really one of those situations. <laughs> I mean, I guess I believe that I believe your explanation that you do love fresh off the boat, but you're disappointed to have to give up some other some other projects that you were excited about. Now, I believe you, but this is not really a hashtag me too situation, right? I don't I don't think this is applicable to that. 
So Constance Wu kind of dropped the ball on that one and she's become a bit of a joke. And in fact, now there was like a little meme, all these other actors, these TV actors whose shows got renewed, started tweeting, oh, fuck, I got to keep working on this show that pays me a bunch of money and made me famous. And so she's a bit of a laughing stock. It'll probably blow over. I think eventually she was probably told by a publicist, Constance, woo, settle down. Stop, stop making matters worse. Good luck to her. The uh, penultimate episode of, uh, of The Simpsons season 30 is the lowest rated episode of The Simpsons in series history. They've never had a lower rated episode of The Simpsons. And there is something to be said for when The Simpsons first came on and then up to like 15 years ago, up to nine years ago, uh, way more people watch television than they do now. Certainly live, certainly network TV, uh, television in general. The ratings are just not to be compared cross-generationally. Cross if you're on this long, you have to look at the numbers differently. But lowest in series history is staggering. Considering The Simpsons is still, I mean, I, I don't know. I never really had this this generational moment where it was like the best it could be and I was watching it watching this revolutionary piece of television and art and comedy unfold. And so now I'm kind of bitter that it's not as good as it once was. I don't really have that kind of attachment to The Simpsons, but uh, I know a lot of people do. And it seems to me that it's still fairly relevant. Isn't that fair? Like it's still in the news every so often. A couple of weeks ago, there was the Justin Trudeau episode of The Simpsons. Every time I watch The Simpsons casually, I'm like, oh, this has still got it. They still have a mojo. This is pretty cool. I guess people are just are just a little bit bored. But for example, and I, The Simpsons was in the news yesterday for a different reason, which is that once again, they predicted the future. This is kind of a remarkable and staggering thing that keeps happening, the way they predicted uh, tampering with voting machines and in general, the Donald Trump presidency and a lot of specifics about Lady Gaga's Super Bowl halftime performance. And uh, I don't know, there's all kinds of different pop cultural moments that The Simpsons has weirdly prophesized. And... I don't know a lot of details because, like I said, I haven't seen the most recent episode of Game of Thrones yet, but there's something quite crucial to the plot of this penultimate episode of Game of Thrones in the series that I guess two years ago, was it fall 2017, uh, The Simpsons did a Game of Thrones episode and, yeah, something with the dragons, they predicted it and sure enough it happens. This is getting kind of weird, right? This keeps happening. Mr. Ratburn is gay. <laughs> this is my favorite pop cultural news since we've last done a show show podcast. PBS's Arthur, based on the children's books by Mark Brown. Season 22, yes, they still make Arthur. And their teacher, Mr. Ratburn, has come out of the closet. And they're doing an episode where Mr. Ratburn gets gay. To a much younger man, by the way. Ooh la la. And people are here for it. People love it. Because, I mean, for one, it's, it's awesome representation in a kid's show. That's so, so cool. But also, I think, because on some level, though none of us ever went there, it kind of checks out, right? <laughs> Looking back, you're like, oh, yeah, that green suit. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. <laughs> and the other thing I think about Mr. Ratburn, this is, I think this is equally representative and important for a kid's show. Because so often, shows about school kids, made for kids, uh, find a way to identify with those kids by turning their teachers into really dull cliche stereotypes. Like so often the teachers are uh, are over the top mean, like to the point where they're the villains of the show, like say in recess uh, with Miss Finster. Like they're just, they're, they're fascists. They're ridiculously over the top bullies and they're irrational as opposed to the rationale of the kids that you relate to. Or the other kind of archetypical teacher in a kid's show Let's use Disney's Recess again. Miss Grotke, the flower child idiot. She's just an idiot, and they kind of rule the roost, the kids. Whereas Mr. Ratburn was a real teacher, man. Like, do you remember when they when they first find out, when Arthur first finds out that he's going to have Mr. Ratburn as a teacher, and he's freaked out because there's all these rumors that Mr. Ratburn is, like, evil, and he goes to the circus, and he sees Mr. Ratburn is, like, eating kids, but it turns out he's just a puppet master or something. <laughs> and... The the storyline, the lesson there is, by the way, in many cases, the teacher that challenges you, the hard-ass teacher, that's the best teacher you're ever going to have. And in many cases, that teacher 
cares a lot about you. And as the series goes on, they never abandon the uh, characteristic of Mr. Ratburn that he works them to the bone. Like every time Mr. Ratburn is on TV, he's like, here's uh, an assignment for a very scholarly dissertation on Moby Dick I need you to do by tomorrow. And uh, he's also kind. He's very sweet. And he talks to them with concern. And I think they grow to like Mr. Ratburn. But like, think back to the teachers you had in school, elementary through through high school, and then probably even university. Aren't the ones that you respect in hindsight, the ones that were kind of hard asses? And I like that Arthur represented that with, with Mr. Ratburn, who, by the way, is getting married. Congratulations to him. I hope in the wedding episode, uh, there is written in the wedding cake in fondant, uh, oh, are you having cake? And if you get that reference, you watched at least as much Arthur as I did, and probably in <laughs> in routine reruns, because that is a deep cut. Congratulations, I feel closer to you already. Then another thing about Arthur is that they always did unique and interesting, uh, very special episodes, TM. Like they did an episode where the lunch lady, Mrs. McGrady, has cancer. Or I think they talked about divorce. There was uh, an episode where uh, there was a fire at the school, and Buster kind of had like, PTSD, I think. They uh, depict class dichotomy in a very open and uh, not that they discuss like, well, they do. I was, was going to say not that they discuss money, but they do. They've got like, Muffy is your token rich kid. Francine lives in an apartment with, with uh, a four-person family. Her dad uh, works as a sanitation engineer. Uh, Buster's a kid of divorce. That's right. There was the episode where DW learns the F word. That was like actually edgy. <laughs> so what I'm saying is Arthur's been woke since the 90s. God bless it and God bless Mr. Ratburn. Josh Gad is going to star in a reboot of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which is the first time I have seen the words Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on a uh, computer screen uh, ever. <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Is he going to play uh, Wayne Zielinski? Josh Gad? Do we take Josh Gad seriously? Because he's had enough cool zeitgeisty uh, qualifiers in his career that he's doing just fine. But like nobody is like Josh Gad is my favorite actor. You know, he was in Book of Mormon. That's great. He was in Frozen. That's money. But who's going to go to the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot starring Josh Gad? I liked the, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids TV series starring Peter Scolari. Where's Peter Scolari? Here are two TV shows with Peter Scolari. <laughs> okay, thank you, Siri. <laughs> uh, that's all I got to say about that. Detective Pikachu, the biggest opening weekend for a video game movie in history. And I don't know the specifics of, uh, of what qualifies you as a video game movie, but are... Okay, is, is Pokemon originally a video game franchise, or did they initially start as a card game? Or like comic book characters or something. Because obviously Pokemon is, is they're indelibly attached forevermore to Nintendo. But they're not owned by Nintendo, right? They're licensed by Nintendo. And even the Pokemon Go, the, the iPhone game, that's a Niantic property. And the Pokemon cards of the late 90s were every bit as popular as like Game Boy Color games, certainly. So my question is, is Detective Pikachu a video game adaptation uh, any more than, like, uh, a Star Wars movie, say, from Benioff and Weiss, is a video game adaptation from Knights of the Old Republic? Because surely that's going to blow it out of the water. Anyway, congratulations to Ryan Reynolds. The movie is doing critically okay. Uh, commercially, it did very well. It had a very good weekend. And most importantly, it's always going to look so much better than Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog uh, released its first trailer, live action Sonic the Hedgehog, which sounded like a weird idea right from the get-go, although so did Detective Pikachu, and sure enough, it was. Uh, and fans were not so happy with the rendering of what Sonic looked like, because namely, he had human teeth. And Sonic doesn't have human teeth. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do a live action or CGI Sonic the Hedgehog with live action people around him, just make him look like Sonic, for God's sake. He looked very weird, and there was so much outcry that the director of the movie actually tweeted, okay, message received loud and clear. I'm sorry, you're not happy with what Sonic looks like. We're going to go back to the drawing board, give me a little more time, and the movie will hopefully turn out better than you seem to think it's going to. So 
Uh, that's good. I mean, it's cool when, when you listen to the fans, although I don't really believe in uh, feeding the trolls or uh, giving the trolls what they want. Then again, you're already kind of riding a thin line. I think Sonic is already kind of a niche property. It's not as broad as Pokemon. And uh, that whole controversy did really good things for the animators, the CGI uh, experts who worked on Detective Pikachu because their renderings are actually pretty good. Like before then, we'd never really seen what a live action Pikachu or Bulbasaur would look like. And now we know. And uh, it's not bad. It could be creepy. They don't have human teeth. That was a wise choice. <laughs> uh, the Game of Thrones coffee cup. I don't know a lot about this because I watched that episode a couple of nights ago and they had already gone in and taken the coffee cup out. I don't... I mean, there's nothing new I can say about the Game of Thrones coffee cup. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've all... We've all <laughs> Do we agree that it seems ridiculous that editors wouldn't have noticed this? And I know that fans and people on Twitter tend to pick up on things that even the creators of... of nerdy things probably wouldn't have considered but i mean it's sitting goddamn right in front of amelia clark she had to know i wonder maybe it wasn't uh maybe it wasn't coffee in the cup maybe it was mead like in uh like in winterfell times steve harvey's daytime talk show is canceled that's cool steve harvey went on this rant every now and then steve harvey goes semi-viral for some asshole rant that he has about like Jesus or something. Steve Harvey, he's done a good job of branding himself as multifaceted, and I'm sure he has gobs of money. Uh, and he and he seems like somebody who loves his gobs of money almost to a hypocritical, hypocritical, <laughs> hypocritical, uh, hypocritical level, considering how much he thinks we all need Jesus, because he's had these rants on like. He like goes on TV, Fox News, as a pundit and talks about how atheists are idiots because look around. Oh, thanks. That's that's really good evidence. Thank you. You made a good point. And so uh, apparently at Family Feud tapings between episodes, he like does these lectures about the importance of having Jesus in your life, which is not what you showed up for when you went to a bunch of Family Feud tapings. That's not why you signed on. That's not why you stood in line. And so the other day, he was filmed having this rant about how uh, needing eight hours of sleep a night is a myth and that you'll never be rich and successful if you sleep eight hours a night, which is not true. Nope. Rockefeller slept like 12 hours a night. And anyway, uh, people need different things. Like, I don't, I don't think the solution to being successful is having like six terrible shows. And now that he has one less terrible show, I think that I don't know if he'll be less or more successful, but I like who they're replacing his daytime talk show with. It's Kelly Clarkson. Don't we all love Kelly Clarkson? She's so bubbly and cool. She seems nice. She's a chatterbox. I think that she's less likely to go on religious rants and judge us all. <laughs> she just seems like less, less hokey. In any case, I'm not going to watch the Kelly Clarkson show. And by the way, I've developed this weird resentment for Ellen DeGeneres. Where did this come from? I just, I find myself watching, because I always watch Toxo clips on YouTube, and I, I've been watching a lot of Ellen clips just because she gets good guests, like she had Taylor Swift yesterday, and, I'm, and that's the only safe enough place where Taylor Swift can be sure she's not going to be asked uh, questions that are damaging to her uh, <laughs> reputation. Um, so she gets good guests, Ellen, and because she's friends with all of these celebrities. But that's one of the things that drives me crazy about Ellen is that she's never tired of reminding us that she's friends with celebrities. Every time Jimmy Kimmel comes on the show, Matt Damon comes on the show, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, she's like, so we're friends and we were texting. And when you had this accomplishment, I texted you. And the other thing Ellen is guilty of is uh, the brilliant journalistic query. Of, so you're in this thing. Tell them what it is. It's not a question. She just instructs her guests to tell the audience what their project is. And she did it a couple of weeks ago with Bill Hader, who's at the end of season two of his criti critically acclaimed show that won him an Emmy last year. She doesn't. He doesn't need to tell soccer moms what Barry is about. He's already done that rant. He did it when he was promoting season one. And you just found it now, Ellen. You just found it now because you're late to the game. And so you think it's new and hot. By the way, how good is Barry this year? Oh, my God. Season finale this weekend. Barry's the best show on television. I think it's so good. Bond 25 is cursed. So we found it a little while ago. Uh, confirmation Rami Malek is going to play the villain, which I think on the one hand is really good. He's villainous and 
he seems almost like he was born for that more so than Freddie Mercury. Um, but on the other hand, I think he's at risk of becoming a bit of a character. It's already not aging well that he won Best Actor, and we kind of knew that was going to happen. Uh, and he's uh, when he put out that commercial where he's like, I like walks on the beach, and I like mischief. Did you see that terrifying commercial of Robbie Malik? It's so creepy. Um, he's becoming, he's leaning a little bit too much into the fact that he's weird. And, I mean, what's weirder than a Bond villain? Right? I mean, like, if they put him in Blofeld makeup, they shave his head, and essentially he's Dr. Evil. He's just Rami Malek, and that's what we're going to remember. Like, we're already not going to remember Bohemian Rhapsody, whether he has a gold statue to prove it or not. So is this going to kind of tarnish what was going to be a cool Mr. Robot legacy? Where he's already kind of villainous, by the way. So I think I think this might be a misstep for him, although... I'm excited to see that movie. What I'm getting at is that Daniel Craig got injured on the set of Bond 25 on what, day two? They just finally got the show on the road. They just got going after Danny Boyle was supposed to be the director, and then he dropped out because of creative differences, which if I remember correctly was he refused to kill James Bond, which means there's a good chance in Bond 25 they're going to kill James Bond, which is also stupid. Um, And... Yeah, they just got the show on the road. It's Jan- Daniel Craig's last James Bond movie, and he injured himself. He broke his leg or something, and so production is suspended. He is going to be 85 by the time they get this movie out. And when Roger Moore was 85, those James Bond movies were bad. They've officially lifted the spoiler ban on uh, the, the Avengers Endgame, which is kind of fun because I didn't really know. I mean, I, I certainly knew that they were that the Russo brothers and Marvel in general were really promoting the importance of uh, spoiler protection. Listen, people are going to see this movie at different rates. We've been building up to it for eleven years. There's twenty two movies. Everybody likes Marvel on a different level, but everybody's going to want to see the End Game. And so, please be kind and be very generous and preserve your spoilers. And it's been, I guess, three weeks now. And so, the Russo brothers came out the other day, and they're like, oh, by the way, the spoiler ban's over. Like, everybody's had a chance. Uh, Don't be cruel, but we're not going to be as strict anymore about people wanting to discuss what happened at the end of this movie openly. And weirdly, I still feel kind of of nervous about doing it. I don't want to talk about the spoilers. Some stuff happens at the end of that movie, which, by the way, was phenomenal. And yes, there's Marvel fatigue, but I cried like a baby like three times through this movie. It's it's so good. It's not too long. I mean, it is too long, but because ethically movies shouldn't be that long. But I didn't get tired, and I almost don't want to see any more Marvel movies now. But uh, the spoiler ban's been lifted. You can ease up. That said, if you haven't seen Marvel Endgame yet, the spoiler ban is lifted. So you might want to get on it. We do have a uh, clip sent in by our friend Jade for Listener Explains a Thing. So this dates back like super long ago because we haven't done a a podcast in like over three weeks at this point. But at least at the time, Slaney was going through some kind of weird phase where he was trying to give up caffeine or was he? No, he was trying to give up just coffee, right? Because he has this weird idea that drinking one to two cups of coffee a day is really bad for him. And whatever, I guess he wants to improve himself and that's fine. I really have no idea where he stands on that uh, endeavor right now. I suspect that uh, how nerve-wracked he was yesterday by all the balls he has in the air because of his wedding this weekend. He probably should have a cup of coffee if he really needs one, but not too much because that's eventually going to be counterintuitive. Um, Regardless, he talked about how in lieu of a cup of coffee, he was having this strange David's tea uh, coffee tea concoction, and I I was curious about what exactly that meant. Uh, <laughs> because it's as far as I'm concerned, uh, tea is just a shredded leaf steeped and dissolved into hot water, and coffee is essentially a shredded or ground coffee bean steeped and dissolved into hot water. So how is it tea if it's made the same way as coffee? And anyway, it came from David's tea. I didn't do any research, but our friend Jay did through the segment we like to call Listener Explains a Thing. I had no idea what David's coffee tea was, and I looked it up and it looks like it's a couple of coffee beans and like a whole bunch of vanilla in a tea bag. This is disgusting, Slaney, and I think that you should have to explain yourself. But he's not here to explain himself is the problem. Uh, And you know what, I think he did his best to explain himself uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he, he seemed to want to admit that it was disgusting, but to admit that his weird coffee tea thing was disgusting would be to admit that he should go back to coffee. and. I don't think he wants to lose that war. Regardless, good luck to him. 
and thank you for your effort, Jade. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure considering the fact that I am completely alone in here and just spewing a stream of consciousness, I'm sure there will be ample things to correct for next week's podcast. So uh, <laughs> if you're sitting alone on the streetcar and talking out loud to yourself and correcting me for all of the idiot things I'm saying to myself or to my cat who happens to be in the room with me right now, uh, turn on the recorder, send it in. I'd love to hear it and we'll play it when we're back. So I guess we should talk about shows. Slaney's not here, obviously. So uh, does that mean we only do one show? We'll review just one show. I'll give you my thoughts on it. You can watch it. You can send me your thoughts on it, and uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll let you know if uh, if I if I recommend it or not. But Slaney's not here to review or to recap another show, so I'm gonna set up the timer for myself and recap the first episode of Netflix is Dead to Me, starring Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate, and I'll go on go in three, two, one. Go. We start with Christina Applegate, who has, uh, about four weeks ago, lost her husband in a terrible car accident. She's attending uh, grief counseling uh, group therapy, but she's not really liking it. She's uh, feeling very aggressive towards all of this kumbaya nonsense. She's approached by Linda Cardellini, who wants to be her friend, who's uh, her fiance died of a heart attack about four weeks prior to. They don't have a lot in common, but they talk all night on the phone and they kind of become best friends. And then it's revealed when uh, Christina Applegate goes over to Linda Cardellini's house that, ooh la la, her fiance is not dead. Uh, and I'm out of time, but yeah, her fiance, she lied about her fiance being dead because her fiance, James Marsden, uh, dumped her four weeks ago when it became clear that they were never going to be able to get pregnant. And so, uh, this is obviously infuriating to Christine Applegate, who is, uh, suffering, um, a very real, uh, bout of grief. And then, through a little bit of mulling it over, it occurs to her that Linda Cardellini, who wanted to be a mom and can't have children and is, as a result, lost uh, the love of her life, who turned out to be not such a nice guy, uh, she's experiencing grief too. And she shouldn't have lied about him dying, but uh, I guess it's forgivable and we're both going through uh, a terrible loss and maybe we can be friends after all. Uh, and so they hang out, they smoke weed together, and uh, Christina Applegate has this kind of quirk where she inspects the dents on people's cars because she's trying to hunt down who it was who hit and killed her husband and then sped away. And so she, she'll like go up to parked SUVs on the street and take photos of the dents in their cars to see if they match how her husband was killed. And she's not convinced at all that this is going to uh, lead to any kind of resolution, but it seems to bring her some kind of comfort to be doing something working towards redemption for her late husband. And then in the end, after we already know that Linda Cardellini is a liar, although we do have some sympathy for her because she's clearly a broken person, she goes to a storage locker where she's storing all her stuff because she doesn't live with James Marsden anymore. And in the storage locker is a Mustang with dents in the front. And she looks at the dents in the front and we're led to believe that maybe Linda Cardellini killed Christina Applegate's husband and she knows and we already know she's a liar so this kind of checks out and the tone of this show is good man I first heard that uh somebody I don't know who it was Cardellini was in some kind of interview and they described the tone of it as akin to Breaking Bad which I'm curious to see unfold because so many of us remember Breaking Bad as this extraordinary uh dramatic character study when it's easy to forget that the first season in original conceit, Breaking Bad was a dark comedy. And that's what this is. Um, and initially, it just seems like a straight comedy. Like there's some golden lines of comedy. And Christina Applegate, by the way, is one of the funniest actresses in the world. Like, I mean, obviously Anchorman, that's kind of like the broadest example. But And I, I don't, I feel a little silly referencing her character arc on Friends because that's such a small blip in the radar, but every one of us has seen it. Did she win an Emmy for for playing Rachel's sister on Friends? Because she's so good. She's such a funny asshole, Christina Applegate. And that's what she draws on in this episode. And her character, who's so angry about the sudden death of her husband and her two sons uh, miss him dearly as well. Um, and she is she is dealing with her grief by just like working out like a maniac and staying up all night and just trying to like hold together some semblance of normalcy and sanity in the terrible grief she's experiencing. The tone of her anger is, I guess, kind of comparable to 
that of Ricky Gervais and that that show Afterlife, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. It's better than Afterlife because Afterlife just feels so imbued with the philosophies of Ricky Gervais, which I'm kind of tired of. And this show seems a little bit more honest. Like there's this beautiful sequence where she's having dinner with her teenage son, uh, both of her sons. And uh, they're eating this casserole that was dropped off by some neighbor because when your husband dies, people feel like they want to do something or they feel like they should have to do something. So they drop off casseroles and that's how they show their condolences. And her son says, I'm so sick of other people's food. And I find that to be a wonderful and moving line because I've never experienced uh, a loss in that capacity, not even close, but I'm so sick of other people's food speaks more broadly to, can't we just get back to our family? And of course they can't in, in the way that they most want to, which is with their father and husband again, he's gone. But what happened to our old routine, our old uh, Tuesday night dinners, our old normalcy? I want to get back to that. And they can't. They have to eat through these ridiculous frozen casseroles that they didn't really ask for to begin with. And so uh, that storyline is awesome. Cut to Linda Carnalini, who's also got a really weird career where she's, she's deeply underrated, right? Like she's had an extraordinary career. I'm talking about a long stint on ER, which is one of the most successful TV dramas of all time. She was on Mad Men. She was the heart and soul of this year's Best Picture Green Book, which obviously is a problematic film, but she's not a problematic part of it. I think actually Linda Cardellini is the best part of Green Book. Uh, She was Velma in the Scooby-Doo movies, which of course are not great, but they're cult favorites and they gave the world James Gunn, so that's important. She's had this really great and varied career. Uh, She still looks great, and for some reason... She's still Lindsay Weir to me. What is it about that show that, I mean, obviously it's great and everybody loves it and it's kind of one of the great what could have been of television history, but Freaks and Geeks just kind of holds on to you and there are very few people who have escaped being indelibly attached first and foremost to that show, which only ran for 22 episodes 19 years ago. I think Franco and Seth Rogen are probably the only two who became movie stars on the level enough where they get away with ever doing an interview where they don't have to talk about Freaks and Geeks, although it still comes up fairly often. Jason Segel can't do an interview without Freaks and Geeks coming up, and I think he's cool about that. I think that's fine. Certainly the case for Linda Cardellini, Uh, probably Martin Starr, probably Busy Phillips, Definitely the kid who plays uh, Sam. What's the guy who plays Sam in in Freaks and Geeks? He's like a screenwriter now. He worked on Spider-Man Homecoming. He played in Bones. He played a guy named Sweets. So he's my brother. Um, Joe Flaherty, who doesn't do uh, TV appearances. But um, Linda Cardellini, she's a good sport about it. But like She goes on James Corden, and she's like, I was on ER and Mad Men and in Green Book recently, and now I'm in this new show with Christine Applegate, which is getting great reviews and is awesome. What do you want to know about Freaks and Geeks? And I wonder, like, she's a good sport about that. I wonder, does that get tiring? It must. Anyway, I, I think she's she's awesome, but she's forever Lindsay Weir to me. Inherent in the DNA uh, of this show is the exploration of the themes uh, of death and grief. And so it's interesting and wise that so quickly they kind of just, uh, they scurry the elephant out of the room of uh, obligatory religion. So uh, Christina Applegate has to go to this support group and it's run by a pastor and they're all going around the the circle talking about uh, the person who died in their life and how they're dealing with that trauma. And they're talking broadly, they're not getting into the specifics like of the Bible, but he's a pastor. And so uh, very quickly we realize that this is not going to be a show that that dawdles around with religion. It's about death, and actually it's about afterlife. Again, Ricky Gervais. It's not really so much about death as it is about grief and how we all deal differently. I appreciate that Christina Applegate uh, is comfortable with the fact that she uh, deals with grief in her own way. Like, it's not like she's going around like, I don't know how to deal with grief, I don't know what to do. She's like, no, this is how I do it. I, I work out like a maniac, and I'm really alone and sad all the time, but that's me, baby. Sorry if you can't get on board with that. Uh, so uh, I think that's good. The show takes place in California. It's very bright and sunny. I thought that uh, it had a, a really vibrant uh, color palette. It was, they made, they did a good job of making California look alive and thriving uh, in spite of the fact that these characters are kind of dead inside. Uh, they're dead to us. 
and they didn't give it that washed out sterile aesthetic that is so often uh what california looks like you'll find that with like entourage is not the best example because that show didn't have a soul uh but so often california is just like trees and that dirty hill where you hike up by the hollywood sign and this show looks nice and vibrant but it's not in a cheap way. And by the way, maybe it's just because it's a pilot, maybe because uh, it's a Netflix show. I've only seen the first episode so far, but uh, the show is uh, is not cheap looking at all or cheap producerially in general. Like the soundtrack is really good. There's a Beach Boys song, which is played for um, a kind of uh, unlikely effect of sadness. How is it that the Beach Boys, Beach Boys music in movies can so effectively uh illustrate sadness in our characters whereas like the, the beach boys were supposed to be symbols of just joy and like summer fun but we know that there was so much strife and uh sadness within the beach boys that their happy music can really effectively be used to illustrate bleakness within our characters and like the best comparison i can think of is love actually in the funeral scene but that's not the beach boys that's the bay city rollers same thing like this this band that is supposed to be joyous and happy-go-lucky, and we see just sadness on our characters' faces, it helps to better illustrate them as alone. And so does the sunshine in the aesthetic of this show that's set in California. It's like everyone around them is like going to yoga class and drinking their giant uh, venti lattes or whatever, and everybody seems to be moving on, but we're stuck still having to eat some neighbor's casserole, and I feel alone. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, James Marsden turns up as the ex-fiance, ex-boyfriend, ex-fiance of Linda Cardellini's uh, Judy. He lives in this awful house. And so what happens uh, narratively is uh, when they're friends, Linda Cardellini and and Christina Applegate, uh, they're showing each other photos of their uh, supposedly late partners. And uh, Linda Cardellini shows Christina Applegate a photo of James Marsden stand, and her standing outside their beautiful home. Like, it's it's a fugly house. It's so big and garish and over the... It's this ostentatious house in a beautiful neighborhood. And uh, Christina Applegate recognizes the neighborhood and address, and so she's able to find that house, and she's going to go over and surprise Linda Cardellini, who's theoretically alone in this giant mansion after the death of her fiancé. And so she shows up, and James Marsden answers the door. And she's like, you're not dead, you're Steve. And Steve is like, oh yeah, we broke up. And so that's when the the twist kind of happens. Um, first of all, I don't know him to play villains very often. And I don't know that he's going to be a villain, although I understand that he's in all 10 episodes of this first season. He's obviously a shitty enough person that he broke up with his fiance because she couldn't get pregnant. Uh, so he's not going to be a good guy in the show. Um, but... Uh, they refer to his his look as that of JFK Jr. She's like, oh, I always kind of thought he looked like JFK Jr., which, by the way, he does. Uh, and it's interesting that he he did play uh, JFK Sr., JFK, um, in uh, Lee Daniels' The Butler. Side note, Lee Daniels, Empire got renewed as well. They're not bringing back Jesse Smollett, but they're going to pay him anyway. And so James Marsden... Um, yeah, anyway, he's, he's, I haven't seen him a lot. He's yet another person who's kind of underused in Hollywood. You see him a little bit. Of course, he's on, he's on Westworld. And by the way, why does he need to do another show if he's on Westworld, which is on, I think, HBO? Why is he on an HBO show and a Netflix show? Is that, is that allowed? Good for him. He's getting work. And so, uh, it's not Linda Cardellini's house anymore, uh, whether it ever was her house, I guess we don't know, but she like led her friend to believe that this was her house so that her friend would think that she's normal and cool and, and relatable. She ladybirded her. She does that in Ladybird, although the house that she claims is hers in Ladybird is like this quaint little uh, town, this little Midwestern, no, I guess it's California, this little neighborhood home, and this house is, as I said, horrible. <laughs> it's awful looking. Uh, this show's kind of fucked. Honestly, like... I said it starts out as a comedy, and then there's this horrible twist that Linda Cardellini is lying, and there's yet another twist at the end that she might still be lying, and in fact, like, this show might be about murder or, like, hit and runs, and I didn't see it coming, but I like Linda Cardellini as this, like, tortured kind of evil loner. I, I, it's not Lindsay Weir. 
And so maybe that's why she did it because it's, it's, she's finally not the wholesome character in it. And so that's really cool. Um, it is created by and written by Liz Feldman, who was like one of the head writers on two broke girls, which I think was created by Whitney Cummings. Um, and previously Liz Feldman didn't do dark stuff. Like she worked on two broke girls, which was poorly written. It was not good. Liz Feldman, by the way, uh, was a cast member on all that. You might recognize her as an older version of one of the girls on all that, like way back when. <laughs> and she's a good writer. So I don't know why she worked on two broke girls, but she, she did a good show in this case. Um, the show is executive produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who recently severed their professional relationship just because they're kind of going separate ways. He wants to, Adam McKay wants to work on more Vice type stuff. He literally has an Academy Award. And Will Ferrell's star might be fading. Is that fair to say? Like, when was Will Ferrell's last big hit? Honestly. Anyway, uh, it was an amicable split, but they're not going to work together anymore, except for that they're shepherding a couple of projects. Um, definitely including this. Does it include Booksmart, this new movie with Beanie Feldstein, which just looks like super bad, although I'm really excited for it? Are they executive producing that? I know Olivia Wilde is directing it. Anyway, there's lots of stuff that they they work on together. Oh my God. Dead to Me is a great pilot. I totally give it my ass. You got to watch this show. It is so, so good. I hope that I, I mean, I kind of spoiled a little bit about the, the pilot. That's kind of what we do on the show, but uh, watch it and then watch the rest. I'm definitely going to. I thought it was... So, so great. Will Smith appears in a new video that is trending for uh, the live action Aladdin movie. It is the song Prince Ali, Ali Asi, Ali Ababwa, all of the songs that the genie sang in the original Disney's Aladdin when it was Robin Williams. Will Smith is going to be singing in this new movie with his own Will Smith kind of style. And you can see Will Smith sing Prince Ali in the new movie. It is so interesting to me how many... uh, how many teasers and promotional videos they're leaking for this movie before it even comes out. I don't know if they're trying to bring it up to the same amount of anticipation as The Lion King has. That's impossible. I don't think Aladdin is going to be as good. I don't think it's going to be that great. Like, I, and, and by the way, like maybe, maybe I'm biased because we have this uh, attitude about Will Smith on this podcast already, but I kind of feel like the whole world is on our, our side about Will Smith. Like, obviously he's done good stuff, but everyone's just like, uh, Will Smith. Do you know what I mean? And that's certainly how we feel about Will Smith playing Genie in this new Aladdin movie, which nobody asked for. And by the way, Will Smith's singing voice is not good uh, and heavily digitized in the little snippet I actually listened to. And it's occurred to me, like, I, I definitely don't want to have to listen to Will Smith sing all these songs we're used to hearing in the voice of Robin Williams, but done with like a Fresh Prince rap flair. I don't want to hear that. I know it's done a little bit. I guess on the one hand, I'm glad he's not rapping Prince Ali Ali Asi, <laughs> but his singing voice isn't good. Is this the first time we've ever heard Will Smith sing? I find that hard to believe, although I can't recall it ever. Maybe it's just especially polished because it's a Disney movie and this whole thing seems like it's going to be deeply and frustratingly sanitized or, or just really Will Smithed up. Anyway, I guess, I guess we'll find out. One thing I will say is that I read today, uh, Will Smith has said that the Aladdin live action reboot is like the most creatively fulfilling endeavor of his career or something. It's like a highlight for his entire storied and enormously record breakingly successful career. Aladdin, which I mean, again, not to be cynical, but why do I feel like this movie is going to be a blip on the radar? Why can't Will Smith see that? Am I off base? I don't know, man. By the way, Will Smith also met with the university student who made that live action Fresh Prince trailer, that trailer that went around a couple of months ago where they, they turned the themes of Fresh Prince into like a deep, dark drama about like class structure and race relations. <laughs> um, and it's it's a story about like Will going to live in, in Bel Air. Um, and it was a really well-made trailer. And so as part of Will Smith's bucket list Facebook TV show, he met with this guy and I don't know. It seems like when you meet with a fan who who creates something spectacular based on uh, work that you made, you're supposed to, aren't you supposed to like give them a bunch of money? 
aren't you supposed to be like, oh, I'll fund your, your next project, or like, we can't, we can't get the IPO for Fresh Prince, but let's work on something together, or screw it, I'm like the last remaining person who actually has any kind of influence over whether or not uh, Fresh Prince is ever going to be rebooted, and we live in such a reboot world that we can make this happen, so uh, yeah, you pay me, and I totally greenlight you to make the live-action dramatic Fresh Prince uh, movie or TV series. Like, why have him on your 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 janky little Facebook show and just be like, oh, good job, man, and then have him interview you? I don't get it. Never trust Will Smith. <laughs>